0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of The State of Art. In this podcast, we probe the present and future of arts and entertainment. I'm your host, Brent Morden, and those of you who know me know that I like to think deeply about what's going on in the world, especially when it comes to the arts and culture. So I'm excited to finally put my voice out there and share my thoughts in this new format. The State of Art Podcast has been a long time coming, and I've got a ton of episodes planned out, special guests coming on, we'll be exploring a lot of ideas together, so I hope you'll join the ride. Without further ado, let's jump into our first episode. As news about the reopening of live entertainment continues to develop, In today's episode, we're going to dig into these stories to address the looming question. What does the future of live performance look like? Especially in cities, will it ever return to its former glory? What's good and bad about the different reopening strategies that we're seeing in places like New York City, London, Austin? Before we get started, I should tell you a bit about where I'm coming from. I was born and raised, and I still live in New York City. Obviously, the arts here have been more than decimated since the lockdowns began in March 2020. I actually attended a Carnegie Hall concert on March 1st, right before our world came crumbling down. And uh, it, was, it was a gorgeous performance. It was the New York Youth Symphony played Dvorak's Cello Concerto and Respighi's Pines of Rome, It was brilliant and, honestly, surreal to think back to that time. It feels like a lifetime ago, because in a way, it was. And in order to understand the post-COVID future of the arts in cities like my own New York, we have to first understand how we got here. For now almost a year, all of us in New York and other cities around the world have been feeling the pain of the loss of live performance. And that's not just the loss of beauty and the energy and life that a Broadway show or a Lincoln Center concert brings into the world, but also the loss of so many jobs and so much revenue, all the economic consequences of the COVID lockdowns. Theaters have been losing millions of dollars each month. So many smaller ensembles and arts organizations that don't have the financial cushion have fallen. New York's most phenomenally talented actors, singers, instrumentalists, you name it. The the star leads in Broadway shows suddenly became unemployed. And for each artist who was thriving, for each artist you saw on the billboards or on stage, there were a hundred, a thousand more artists behind the scenes who were grinding every day, working hard to weave a little niche for themselves in the wonderful fabric of our art scene. I know that because I'm one of them too. Live performance was such a booming industry in New York City especially. And I'm focusing here on New York City because it's not only the place I know best, but also because it's one of the great arts capitals of the world. I think we can agree that New York City is something of a standard bearer, a microcosm for the arts more broadly. The fallout from COVID-19 and its ensuing lockdowns in cities like New York have been so utterly and clearly devastating for the arts that it makes me think, did it have to be like this? What would be the alternative? Let's think back to early March 2020. Close your eyes and visualize. COVID-19 was a completely new virus that our species never encountered before. It was raging around the world. We didn't know much about it. It was infecting and killing people. So, at that time, government, here in New York, for example, had a reasonable rationale to say, okay, let's close performance venues for a couple weeks because indoor crowds are spreading this new virus that's killing people. That was the whole philosophy behind 15 days to slow the spread. I remember that time very clearly because it directly impacted my work. At the time, and and still today, I manage the programs for a a Manhattan-based children's choir nonprofit. Our choirs and everybody else in our city making live music immediately had to toggle from rehearsing in person in the same room, as it naturally is, to rehearsing via this brand new video conferencing software called Zoom. It was really weird. But we all figured, okay, this is temporary, it'll blow over in a couple of weeks, we'll slow the spread, and then we'll get back in action. The common feeling among us in the live performance sphere was a hopeful return in a few weeks' time. Among musicians, and actors, and directors, in choirs, bands, casts, and even school music programs. Oh, what wishful thinking of course we all know the story as the original lockdowns stretched past 15 days and as this new virus raged on it seemed that in order to save grandma the only appropriate course of action for indoor spaces that gathered crowds was to remain shut down so for artists involved in broadway off-broadway lincoln center uh, independent ensembles comedy clubs small quirky venues in brooklyn basically any spaces and groups reliant on live shows, that meant continued unemployment and revenue losses and bad feelings, uncertainty, anxiety, not just about this new virus, but also about our future. For my children's choirs, it meant we had to accept our fate that spring 2020 was going to be a Zoom semester. It also meant adapting to our fate by figuring out how to produce a virtual concert for the very first time, which a lot of groups did on the fly. Right off the bat, in April 2020, Jazz at Lincoln Center put on a virtual gala called Worldwide Concert for Our Culture. It was not only a gorgeous production, but also a proof of concept of sorts, tacitly signaling to the arts world that this is how we must create for the time being. The key term there being, the time being. In spring 2020, the general feeling and public messaging around the lockdowns as they pertain to live art pointed toward a hopeful reopening in fall 2020. For many of us, despite the pain of canceled concerts and not being able to make music together, this new temporary normal was something of a neat challenge. I found myself learning new skills through brute force, uh, learning how to mix audio and edit video for a virtual concert, for example. Spring 2020 was rough for the arts, but many of us took advantage of new opportunities that our situation presented. That's what we as artists and as humans do. Many of us were also feeling, you know, we're seeing the weather getting warmer, cases finally going down around May, the trees are growing leaves, the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing. Basically, there was some feeling of hope in the air for a return to normal, but not so fast. Summer 2020 in New York was a welcome breath of fresh air, quite literally. Outdoor performances were enjoying their moment I remember seeing a few outdoor comedy shows, which felt amazing just to hear and see somebody get up in front of an audience entertaining us after so darn long. But it seemed that fate had been sealed for live indoor performances. As 2020 continued on, the tentative reopening date for our arts institutions kept getting pushed back. Carnegie Hall and Broadway which had originally set their sights on fall 2020, announced that they would continue to be closed until January 2021, because it wasn't quite safe yet to reopen. Hmm. Then, as the autumn leaves began to fall, the fall brought some pockets of COVID cases that really sealed the deal of closure, at least through April and June 2021. Meanwhile, economic and livelihood damages kept mounting and artists have been fleeing New York City in droves. When our government decided to shut down live performance in March 2020, could they have predicted the incredible series of consequences that unfolded? I don't know. Did they do the right thing? Well, if the goal was to save some lives from a strange new virus, then... Quite possibly. If the goal was to put thousands upon thousands of artists out of work and to flatten an industry that breathed vitality and soul into our city's cultural life, then absolutely. If the goal was to expand authoritarian overreach into the lives of private citizens trying to make a living and to restrict our freedoms in the name of safety, then job well done. and. That's why it's such a tricky situation. Policy decisions like locking down and reopening are fundamentally a question of priorities. And they're fundamentally a question of risk versus reward. We'll get to that soon. First, here we are now in February, 2021. My children's choirs are still rehearsing and performing virtually as are many other groups the charm of Zoom has long worn off. For some, there was no charm in losing live performance to begin with. Nearly all of us who've been doing music and art virtually see that this is not really sustainable in the long term. To its credit, for my children's choirs, going virtual has given many new students the opportunity to sing and participate in our programs who otherwise would not be able to because of where they live. So there has been some silver lining. And also the creative challenges of producing concerts virtually have yielded some impressive results. But fundamentally, the arts are not meant to be created and consumed through a screen. It's like eating food that has no taste or texture. It's not right. That's why so many schools, groups, Studios, including a studio where I'm so grateful to teach, have been rehearsing and making art together in person during the ongoing COVID era with safety guidelines in place. Now let's explore the merits of these safety guidelines because they help dictate the course of our future. When 2020 was happening, the looming question in the public conversation about reopening live performance morphed from when do we reopen to how do we reopen safely? The term safely being commonly agreed upon as reducing the opportunities for spreading COVID-19 because this virus happens to be relatively contagious and sometimes manifests without symptoms. That meant for any ensembles or productions looking to do things in person during the COVID era, wearing face masks quickly became the norm because face masks reduce the amount of aerosols and droplets you breathe into the air, which reduces the risk of spreading this virus if you're asymptomatically contagious. It also meant that testing quickly became the norm as well because if you tested negative, then you clearly won't get anybody sick. For example, I was on set at a uh, commercial filming in November 2020, and these two guidelines were exactly what they asked of everybody there. Get tested and wear a mask. Simple enough, right? Another example. If all the talent in a theatrical production tests negative, then there's no problem for them to sing and perform in close contact without masks. And that's why the Metropolitan Opera has been streaming filmed, live, staged performances. Wow! Even though live audiences aren't allowed into the hall, their cast has been tested and therefore are good to go. They form a pod of sorts. This same approach allowed me, as the composer and music director, and my writing partner, and a crew of actors and musicians to record a filmed original musical that we created during December and January. So during the COVID era, in cities like New York, there have been reasonable ways that ensembles, groups, productions could put on at least something that's done in person. However, the health guidelines that we've had to follow have been clunky. At that commercial that I was at, testing took up a huge chunk of our afternoon, not to mention a chunk of the production's budget. Here's a thought experiment. What if at that commercial, they had not tested us and just let us be on set maskless? You know, like the good old days. The production company certainly would have saved a lot of time and money for one. And because this commercial happened to film all outdoors, and because aerosols and droplets that we breathe disperse almost immediately outdoors, so that the risk of catching a virus is practically negligible, what would have happened is, we all would have been fine. But what if this commercial was filming indoors without any guidelines? Then, perhaps, some people on set might have caught COVID-19. And here's the million-dollar question, folks. Is it worth the trouble? Was saving several people from catching this virus truly worth the time and money and discomfort sacrificed by everybody? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they saved somebody from getting severely ill and dying. We don't know. At first, the lockdowns and health guidelines seemed necessary and reasonable. But as we learned more about COVID-19, and we watched different reopening strategies take place in different cities, it was no longer evident that these guidelines made a meaningful difference anymore. Because now we know is that the death rate for COVID-19 is quite small for viruses of its type, especially small for people who are not elderly and don't have any underlying health conditions. But what's developed over the last year, for better or worse, has been an obsession with safety, not just within our government and public health spheres, but also within our culture. In December 2020, Actors' Equity Association, one of the premier labor unions for American actors, released their official set of COVID safety guidelines for live productions. They detail guidelines for any Union production that's indoors or outdoors, with or without an audience. It's on their website. You can read it. While we're here, why don't we scroll through one of these guideline documents? Let me pull it up. So, this is the producer COVID 19 safety intake worksheet, Outdoors with an Audience. Talks about the four principles. Uh, There must be a sustained decrease in new COVID cases. Individuals who may be infectious can be readily identified and isolated. There's protocols with contact tracing with the government. Um, They require an infection control specialist. COVID-19 testing plans, test results, notifications. Where will testing take place? I'm just reading some headlines here. Protocols following a positive test a series of protocols for employers, health and safety, symptom screening, quarantine guidelines, medical resources, social distancing during rehearsals, backstage and off hours, food and beverage being screened, orientation and training, venues, health and safety protocols for the venue. And this is, this is a 30-page Word document here. Ventilation in indoor workspaces, detailing HVAC, spacing in the work, Elements for the show, including PPE and social distancing, limitations on costumes and the use of set pieces, housing, protocol, ventilation. You get the idea. You get the idea. And if you thought just masking and testing were clunky, these guidelines absolutely dwarf them. Now, our production companies and actors and investors even Reading these guidelines, thinking, all right, this sounds great, no problem, let's get back into things. Or do they read this thinking, oh my god, what I see here is more work, more time spent, more money spent, more complicated procedures, more opportunities for litigation, more making our lives difficult? For what? For what? Because, what does it really mean to be safe anymore? That's the million dollar question when it comes to reopening live performance. Because, if we want to reopen safely, we have to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to be safe? The reality is, there's risk inherent in everything that we do. Every single day, we make decisions balancing risk versus reward. It's a given in life. Whenever I go out to teach at the studio where I teach, I drive out on the highway. Why? Because the reward of my job, which driving there allows me to do, outweighs the risk of getting injured or killed in a road accident. Drivers like me are aware of this risk, of course. We know that thousands upon thousands of people get into road accidents every year some of which are fatal, many of which injure other people. But no layperson thinks that you're recklessly endangering society by simply driving to work as long as you drive well. Whatever you do, there will be some risk of getting injured or dying, both in private and public, where the risk affects other people. Does that mean you should just not do anything ever? No, because that's no way to live. Risk should instead incentivize us and empower us to make better decisions as individuals. When it comes to live performance, if the government had not stepped in, the risks surrounding COVID-19 would incentivize venues or ensembles or production companies and individuals to balance risk versus reward for themselves. Maybe that means deciding to shut down. Maybe that means staying completely open as before. Maybe that means finding a middle ground by enacting reasonable, common-sense, evidence-based precautions without hysteria and without going all out like the actors' equity guidelines. Unfortunately, the continued lockdowns in cities like New York forced a decision upon us that had a lot of consequences on the arts world. It forced it on us. In states that were a bit more laissez-faire, like Texas and Florida, many performance venues had the freedom to make their own decisions. And what happened? Their decisions balanced risk and reward. Live performances were happening in places like Dallas, Austin, Miami, Tampa, I remember seeing YouTube highlights of comics performing there live with an audience during COVID. Austin especially has seen artists, musicians, comics flooding in during the COVID era. Now that's a piece of information that signals perhaps they're doing something right. So why hasn't New York City followed suit? Is it because it's simply been too unsafe this whole time? It's clear that our government and media's public messaging about COVID-19 has creeped up the threshold of what we legally and socially consider to be, quote, safe, regardless of whether or not it reflects reality. This is the culture of safety. The culture of safety. In a place like New York City especially, this culture of safety, people and businesses and government afraid to cross that threshold, leaning into guidelines upon guidelines, will make reopening, with a capital R, a tough gambit. As long as our government keeps dictating the course of events rather than allowing its constituents to dictate the course of events, the return of live performance in cities like New York will be inefficient and insufficient. At the very least, New York's governance has put forth some initiatives on the road to reopening. Earlier this month, Governor Andrew Cuomo, as quoted from ny.gov, announced the launch of NY Pops Up, an unprecedented and expansive festival featuring hundreds of pop-up performances, many of which are free of charge and all open to the public that will intersect with the daily lives of New Yorkers, end quote. Basically, Pops Up is going to be a series of publicly funded free outdoor pop-up performances around New York City. They're meant to stimulate New York City's artistic life again as a precursor to the city's reopening of live indoor performances, which, as announced will happen in so-called flexible venues or flex venues. They're called flexible because they allow for safety guidelines to be met. Ah, yes, it's all about the guidelines. Even though at this point, with what we know about COVID, with the myriad of cheap and effective treatments out there that have existed from the very beginning, with people getting vaccinated and reaching herd immunity, At this point in time, it's not self-evident that these guidelines are making us meaningfully safer. However, we're past the point of no return. Safety has become an idol. And if adhering to strict, perhaps even arbitrary guidelines and reopening in these flex venues is what the government tells us is the way to reopen safely, it must be true, right? because individual venues, ensembles, organizations, and people can't be trusted to make our own decisions. That's why, even though the news of Pops Up, which I encourage you to read more about, is promising, and honestly, it's wonderful to see that live music and art will happen again in New York City, there's a dark undercurrent. This initiative creates a situation where The return of live performance is now dependent on the state. The government is dictating the course of reopening. Even though the reopening puzzle can be more efficiently, and perhaps with fewer ongoing consequences, solved when we have freedom to make choices, when we have freedom to determine our priorities and balance risk versus reward, as has been successfully demonstrated in places like Texas and Florida. Otherwise, time, money, and effort will be allocated in ways that don't necessarily help. Meanwhile, artists and venues in cities like New York, who were not selected by the visible hand of the government, will continue to struggle as they lose money, lose options, and lose faith. Andrew Lloyd Webber, The legendary composer of musicals like Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar recently said it himself. Speaking of London, Weber said, quote, theater is a global business, and why would you open it if you feel that the government is not really behind it? If we're stuck at 50% social distancing or something, we can't operate. There's no point. End quote. The same goes for places like Madison Square Garden, which recently announced they'd be opening up limited seating for sports games. But is it too little, too late? Here's a thought experiment. Imagine that our government in New York City or London dropped the case today and said, no more guidelines, you're free to rehearse and put on shows, do what you will. What would happen with live performance? First. I think venues would start opening up. Many venues would probably continue to require that people test and wear masks and maintain distance. Some might not. People who are risk-averse might not go to productions at the latter. Some might go right ahead. A lot of people nowadays are too scared, perhaps permanently, of ever stepping foot in a room with others maskless ever again. Again, the culture of safety. At least this hypothetical scenario would be an opportunity to let us as individuals freely decide for ourselves and see where the cards fall. Millions of people's individual decisions collectively provide information on what the best course of action is, because the reality is we're long past the point of reasonably justified government intervention. When it comes to reopening successfully, freedom might just be the way forward. Why do you think so many artists are flocking to Texas after all? To wrap it up, I'd like to reframe our opening question by asking, what would it take for live performance in cities like New York to return to its former glory? What would it take? It would take unprecedented cooperation among those who have the power to make it happen. Our government here in New York has the power to roll back the policies that have been arbitrarily keeping the arts down for so long. Artists have the power to relentlessly create and continue sharing our voices and stories with the world. And people have the power to support the arts. It's not impossible. So, I look forward to seeing how Pops Up turns out. Maybe it'll be a role model of the spark that jumpstarts our art scene back into action. Or maybe not. Maybe we have to adapt to our new reality. I remain skeptically optimistic and optimistically skeptical. Whatever happens, though, art always finds a way. Artists always adapt. If that means moving to Texas, then so be it. But I know that for myself, as an artist staying put here in New York, I have no choice but to continue fearlessly making art because if we want the arts to survive, there's no alternative. Thank you for tuning in to The State of Art. I hope you enjoyed this very first episode. If you have any thoughts, agreements, disagreements, questions about what we talked about here, I'd love to hear from you. Email thestateofart at mordenmeetstheeye.com. That's my last name, mordenmeettheeye.com. Maybe I'll even bring you on for an episode, we'll see. The best is yet to come, so if you like what you hear, please share this episode and subscribe for more. Once again, I'm your host, Brent Morden, and until next time, champion yourself.